Welcome to Her Stories, a series of podcasts showcasing the diverse expertise, wisdom, and courage of the members of the Mediterranean Women Mediators Network, presented by peace activist Magda Zenon. In each episode, recorded during the coronavirus social isolation period, a different mediator shares her story. Hello, this is Magda, and today on Her Stories we have Patricia Kilak, an environmental and international lawyer from Andorra. Welcome, Patricia. Thank you, Magda. Hi to everyone. Uh, Patricia, you wear so many hats, but I find your environmental hat is the hat that you are more comfortable with, I think. So introduce us to who Patricia is. Yes, actually, of course, I'm a lawyer, and I started my career as a young diplomat, But even as I started working, I always wanted to specialize in environmental law uh, because it's really um, a call, a calling for Mm. me uh, to defend and uh, work for the environment, to be a voice that defends the environment. And it's not always easy to make a career out of this calling. And this is why I have, I probably have many hats, but this is my favorite hat, my, my most passionate hat, and the one I believe I can uh, be very helpful. Uh, tell me, what uh, sparked your interest in the environment? Was it the place you grew up in, or was it just something that came out? Uh, listen, it came out when I did my um, third year of international law in Canada. Mm. I was in Quebec. I was young. And it was a wake up, an, an ecological awakening for me, because the um, dimension, you know, of North America environment is so impressive when you come from Europe. Even though I was born and raised in the mountains in the Pyrenees, which are marvelous, stunning they are. The more I grow up, the more I love my environment. But when I was young, Arriving in Canada was like, wow, this, you know, the sunsets, the snow, the strength of the uh, natural elements. Also, the fact that already in 1992, people were recycling. I mean, mm. in 1992, no one was recycling in Europe. So for me, it was like, wow, why are we not recycling in Europe? And this is where I started putting my interests together, international law, international diplomacy, and the protection of the environment. Uh, in 1992, there was a very important uh, conference with which the, the, Rio, um, uh, the Rio Summit. Mm. This is where the climate change, the Convention for uh, the Protection of Biodiversity were adopted. This was a very important conference. Uh, moment in in terms of environment uh, protection and I definitely felt that that momentum in my uh, in my youth and being in Canada and being exposed to all that that was definitely the uh, wake up uh, awakening uh, for me in terms of environmental sensitivity yes well we have something in common because I've always also studied international law but my international law had to do with divided communities and conflict. Strange. I mean, I, that, that, as you said, something when something is a calling, it's a calling. Yes. <laughs> it's just there and you just follow it. And, and if you love it enough, it actually takes you to where you, want, where you need to be. Yes. And I think, you know, at the end, the more you grow up, the more you see this kind of also uh, holistic 
circle where everything is linked because you you know i often i do not want to be a hypocritical uh westerner ecologist who is not aware that in in order to make you know the batteries of your telephone we have children in africa who are you know almost slaves from four years old this is not right this is not right so um the environment for me was also the way i started seeing all the wrongs that are being done to so many communities mm -hmm. and because we violate so much the, the nature the territories we also violate the human the human rights of so many communities mm -hmm. And so many conflicts are based on the fact that we exploit natural resources without any regard for the impact on the ecosystem or the impact on the communities. It's tragic and it, they, are, they go hand on hand. You cannot separate so many of the environmental conflicts and wars and uh, human conflicts mm. in the world. Well, I grew up in Africa. And Africa, in Southern Africa, drought, the lack of water. Yes. The lack of water. And even though I was a privileged white person living in a city, there were really strict regulations in place of you use so much water per house. You don't use more. You water at this time. And at the time, I used to think the fact that the police were actually monitoring was a bad thing. Not a bad thing, it's for, but they were actually monitoring and people would get fines and then you'd drive out of the city and you would see the cracked earth and you would see the dead cows on the side of the road with the blown up tummies or the, or the children with the blown up bellies and you thought, you know what, think beyond yes. your space, think beyond your comfort zone, everything is linked. If yes, I, if this I, is, you if, know, if I this is water, the first law of ecology. The first law of ecology states everything is linked to everything else. I mean, that's one lesson that I still practice today. I've always been very careful with water. If there's water left over in my plastic bottle, which I shouldn't be using because it's plastic, but I always have water with me. I will, if there's water left over and I don't know how long I've had it there, I will water a plant. I will put water for the cat. I will put it, I will, I will not throw water away, even a drop. So we do need to remember that everything's linked. But tell me a little bit about how you've combined Because you're also a trained mediator. How you've combined? Yes, what I, I, yes, it's actually when I did after working four years as a young diplomat, I had some savings on the side, and I went to New Zealand to do a master of law mm -hmm. in environmental law. Wow! And when I have finished that uh, master, I still had some money, so I took my money and myself, and I went to the Vermont Law School which uh, is a specialized law school in the United States in environmental law. And this particular summer, that was summer of 2000, they were doing an alternative dispute resolution summer okay. for environmental disputes. So it was all about mediation, arbitration, and negotiation in environmental disputes. And okay. I spent two months and a half, so it's not like a huge training, but it was very good. Like, for example, in negotiations, we had the head negotiator of uh, Nike mm -hmm. company. So I can tell you the guy was good. <laughs> we had also a fantastic professor from uh, an Australian university on mediation. Now I 
don't remember his name exactly, but we had ex there was an excellent level that uh, had been put together for that training in alternative dispute resolution, and uh, it was very, it was based on a lot of cases and cases and cases because it was just a summer, so it was not extremely theoretical. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of course a lot of homework. But it was really based on the, you know, play role play and uh, and it was truly fascinating. And for me, it's when I discovered that wow, why don't all law students who are supposed to become most of them lawyers or attorneys, uh, you know, that they will be emerged in conflict all the time? Why don't they have these skills? First of which is listening. Um, you know, listening. We are you know, so. I thought it was the, one of the most useful summers of my entire training as a lawyer. The ones that I dedicated to alternative dispute resolution and mediation. And again, that was another awakening in many ways. You know, to realize that you can try to find solutions. You can try mm. in different ways. You don't have to finish always in in front of the judge. Uh, there but, might be a need to go to the judge, but it might not always be the case. And of course, I'm talking here of environmental conflicts that are not, uh, you know, maybe in peace or, you know, peace negotiations, so, you know, dimension or in war conflicts. This is more like regular, between brackets, I would say, uh, conflicts. But still, it was so interesting for me. And uh, I've been using those skills for the last 20 years in so many situations. Well, we know anyway that whenever there's a conflict or ever whenever there's a negotiation between countries, the sharing of resources plays a very big part in how and whether a settlement will be found. So the environment is a very big part of finding a way that we share it. And it's not me taking away from you or you taking away from me. It's a way of ensuring that the environment is yes. something we share and we get the best of for both the environment and for ourselves. Yes, it's always about that. It's finding the, you know, the less conflicting solution, mm. someone where an agreement can be made upon. And uh, this is crucial. And uh, I could use these skills when uh, I was uh, president of a very small uh, I am talking about Andorra, micro state, uh, made of 78,000 souls <laughs> in the world. And yet there are conflicts as well because of the location of the waste incinerator, because of the new road or the new tunnel mm. that needs to be built, uh, the new school, you know, this kind of everyday issues, but yet that they manage to create conflicts like infrastructures that uh, it's called the not-in-my-garden syndrome, mm -hmm. that uh, people don't want to have certain infrastructures close to their places. And uh, so it's a lot of negotiation. And sometimes the governments or the authorities are not able to vehiculate with the proper tone, with the proper respect for citizens, what is going to be done that at the end might be of interest of everyone. I'm not saying that the government is always wrong in wanting to do an infrastructure, but sometimes that in communicating their project or in how they will proceed because procedures sometimes 
is too blunt. They don't consult people. They don't inform people. And this is where uh, a lot of conflicts are born from the lack of good communication, a lack of democratic participation and consultation. And a lack of good listening on behalf of the policymakers. Yes, yeah, also. <laughs> because, 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 also. Yes, because you've got Because to... what is very interesting in the environmental field is that within the process of communicating, the population and uh, will come with experts themselves. Some of them will be engineers, some of them will be doctors, some of them will be, you know, agriculturists, mm. and they will come with knowledge. And this knowledge might improve the, the project itself from the beginning that had been done in just one dimension mm. from, let's say, architecture or engineer point of view, but not from the other point of view. And sometimes the participation and putting these different sides, these stakeholders together, allow for a better project at the end. And this is very interesting in the environmental field. When, you know, sometimes the, the agreement is reached mm -hmm. and honestly, it can be very, very positive for everyone. Because sometimes going back to that, that the policymakers don't listen, if they actually listen to what people need, they might end up with a completely different project. Also, also, because this is another standard. Sometimes, you know, when you're in the middle of a conflict, uh, you will see that uh, there's uh, the agreement can be on the lower part or it, sometimes it can get in the higher part. Mm. And, uh, you know, as you say, sometimes a completely different project. Uh, I've never experienced it myself, <laughs> I wish, but uh, I've seen better, better projects. Yes, but I've seen better projects, yes. Tell us something exciting, something that you're particularly proud of if you've been in a mediation or in a conflict situation and you actually helped it move to the other side of success. For example, I remember here in, in Andorra, we had at a certain point uh, a very old waste incinerator. Mm -hmm. And I was at the time in a sort of a middle position because I had started doing some consultancy for the Minister of the Environment yet I was still very much linked to an association where I had been the president of that association. And because of my actions within the association, I've always put forward the um, what is very important is the principle of public participation, mm. which entails, first of all, access to environmental information. And this access to the environmental information Public authorities in Europe cannot deny it. Simply they cannot because the EU has abided itself by what it's called the Aarhus Convention, mm -hmm. which is about the public participation in environmental decision-making. Mm. And these rules, um, the EU has put it in all its regulations and directives. And because Andorra was at the time was willing to uh, let's say, level itself by the EU rules, they were obliged to get this uh, information. Okay. And um, so the population was able to ask for the levels of dioxin emission, and they were able to have the very old uh, uh, waste incineration stop because it was really contaminating. And 
the solution at the beginning was uh, to have a simple waste incinerator, really probably too much uh, dimension for the needs of the population mm-hmm. because often governments put themselves in um, growth, you know, philosophy, yes. economical growth, which means more waste, more goods, more more everything, instead of thinking, okay, more recycling, less burning. Mm. You know, this, this, so the dialogue, and I was really a sort of in the middle person during this conflict, uh, you know, passing the, the, the requirements from the public to the authorities. It was very interesting that at the end we have a waste management facility that also generates electricity, electricity okay. and, and heat. So, of course, it's not ideal, you know, but still Andorra is a very small territory. And when you see also the problems of countries like Italy, which has so much opposition to waste incinerators because people really don't want them, yet at the same time they are overwhelmed by waste, mm. I think that sometimes no solution or no, or no decision is not so good for the environment. And an agreement in that case was to have a reduced-sized waste incinerator and with the um, the possibility to transform the heat of the of the burning into uh, you know heat for the house and uh, electricity and this was the compromise okay that's not a bad compromise in this case it's no. better to have something okay that works that you can improve on rather than have nothing at all Exactly. And from that, of course, they, the government itself developed an entire waste strategy, which uh, at the beginning they said, no, we will never compost. And now they also compost. So from one starting point, one starting decision uh, with good procedures, because uh, one of the things was that there needed to be a citizens committee that will always monitor the functioning of this waste facility. Okay was sort of binding, you know, and they accepted, they accepted to have it. And uh, this means that they have been putting more and more ecological and citizen input into that management of that facility. And at the end, at the beginning, you know, where they were still in two different sides, like they were with the citizens, you the government, you the waste facilities, with the people who live in this area. And little by little, the interests have become one, and now there is not so much opposition, and they keep working very positively on the waste strategy at the national level. And that, to me, even though I was just a small part during the conflict, I am glad to see that because we put the foundations of a good agreement, everything that has followed after has worked, has worked well. Tell me how easy was it to bring all the parties together? Because when you're talking about a conflict, a lot of the time the people at the top are just thinking about how much it costs or how much they're going to win. In Andorra, we are lucky because um, we are a very small population. But I remember, you know, in that case, this was the first uh, public, you know, uh, manifestations where people, for ecological reasons, like parents from schools that were close to the incinerator, were demonstrating in the street. And I remember being with the minister at the time and uh, 
she really was not understanding because she was telling me, but we have given them the information. They know we will stop. So what's the problem? <laughs> so, uh, and she was a very good person. I mean, really, she was not someone blind. She had children herself. She's a, she comes from a very middle class family. So no, so no one with interests or, you know, blind. But yet when they are in charge of the authorities, the dialogue is not easy. It is definitely not easy. So at the end, what happened is that the, the, um, the citizens' committee was not made through the um, association of the environment because mm. there was resistance from the government. It was made through the neighbors, through the neighbors. But the neighbors, uh, we would they would come and consult the association. Okay. And uh, this is how we. This is how we manage. And at the end, when the agreement was, um, so the dialogue was mainly constituted of a group of people from the government and from the the ones who hold, let's say, a legal direct interest because they are neighbors in the waste facility. And this was very difficult for the government to say no. So a group was created. And this is how the dialogue started. And uh, with the associations helping that group of neighbors and, you know, in terms of advising them, uh, they were able to get the message in that committee and little by little, that's how the agreement. And when there was a draft agreement, Mm -hmm. then they consulted the the associations and we were able to put more, uh, you know, uh, recommendations in the agreement. And at the end, of course, they did not listen to all of us, all of our recommendations, but some of the recommendations. And that, that was um, materialized in the law, uh, the new law on waste, on the waste facility. You don't want, you wouldn't expect them to listen to all your your recommendations. It would be unheard of if they took them off. But as long as they <laughs> no. did. But of course it was a mediation and it was, uh, you know, it started like me being in the middle and then this group of neighbors with the government and we, we were advising them and then it evolved and then there was a procedure and, uh, and then I had moved inside of the government. So I had, you know, I was able to advise them legally mm. to put the procedure to include the principle of access to information, to public participation, and then the environmental NGOs were also included in the supervising uh, group of the waste facility. Now, what I meant is that they, as long as they're listening to some of the recommendations, that yes. means they're actually listening. Yes, yes, yes. So it's making a start. It means you actually, you might be changing a perception, you're doing a slight shift, so it's a very good start. Um, you also did work in Tuscany on yes, managing water yes, the work biodiversity. Yes, in Tuscany was after I finished my PhD, my PhD, which I did, believe it or not, but it's going to be easy, in public participation in environmental decision-making. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because during those years, in 2000, the European Union adopted a directive on the Basin River Management and uh, the procedure requested by the European Union for the member states when they are uh, drafting their uh, river basin management plans mm-hmm. is extremely participative, extremely, with very long times of consultation, of participation, with groups being able to give their input. So it's very interesting. 
and I compared France, Spain, and Italy on how they would implement that specific article of the framework water directive. So that was uh, the area. After finishing my PhD, uh, I went to make some interviews at the, um, at the Tuscan region. And uh, because it clicked, we, I clicked with the, he was the, the person in charge of uh, territory planning, the entire land planning for the region. The district and planning. They were developing at that time a new a new a new law had been adopted in uh, in Tuscany about land planning and instead of being a very hierarchical um, law where the region says to the province what they have to say and the province say to the municipality what they have to say it was non-hierarchical so the law was giving tools to the local authorities mm -hmm for them to decide which was the best and the most appropriate for them to use. Of course, the region still wants to know what happens on the territory, on its jurisdiction. So we were developing, and that's where I was hired for, mm -hmm. we were um, developing a monitoring system of the implementation of the land planning law. The, yes, And I, I sub-enter when it was relating to public participation, so I had to go to many municipalities and see how they were um, making the public participate. And sometimes when they had not thought or yet started their participatory processes, I would um, you know, help with the municipality team to make participatory tables, round tables, mm -hmm. to have the local citizens um, express themselves on the landscape plan on the urban plan on the historical center plan etc etc that was very interesting for me because each municipality is a different reality exactly of the governing body of the political forces in action of the level maybe of um, awareness you know education of the citizens that will come it, every time it was an entire different um, scenario. So that was very formative for me in terms of also speaking to very different audiences. Yes, because not everyone has, and also not everyone has the same awareness of people participation. No. So for me, it was, uh, that was my mediation skills were very required, whereas I was able to hear what they were really meaning uh, which is not always exactly what they are saying, but if you can start un listening, understand what is their concern, yes. you can then reformulate for the authorities what is it that they really mean. Mm. And when you say it, people just say, they say, yes, this is it, exactly. And when I was able to put my finger on this, you know, concerns of mothers, of, uh, you know, workers, of enterprise uh uh, you know, chiefs, then for me, it was really satisfactory because uh, I had the feeling that, again, I was facilitating something. I was not on my own. We were a team, but it was very, very interesting. Every time it was interesting, passionating, actually. <laughs> what is every time you learn, also every time you learn new things about yourself, about your yes. limits and how you can, yes. uh, how you can be more creative? It's very humbling, though, because sometimes... Uh, you repeat, you said, I said I wouldn't do that Do that again, yet you do it again because it's a little bit in your nature, your <laughs> temper. 
and it shows, sometimes it shows. But it's curious that, you know, sometimes when you put a vest of a specific function, mm -hmm. you tame your temper because, uh, you know, I can be, when I'm in a negotiation, I'm, I'm really on my side. I will defend my side. Mm -hmm. But when you put yourself in the role of a facilitator and you, and of course you've been trained somehow, you have to understand the difference. It is very interesting how you adapt quickly and you put that vest and you tame your temper and you put yourself in the function and you act differently, differently as if you would have been in one of the sites. But having been in negotiation process is makes me understand also, well, each of the sites, because I've been in an NGO, I've mm. been also working for the government And sometimes, you know, I've been very defending very strongly my government uh, in some international organizations. Mm. So I can understand also, you know, the the narrative of government, the narrative the of narrative, NGOs, yes, yes. the narrative of citizens. Because at the end, each of them holds a part of the solution and maybe a part of the truth. That's the reality. And without each of them you know, coming together, there will no be there there will be no solution. So would you say that's one of your strengths, the fact that you you can understand both sides or all sides because you've it's, because you've it's worked a, in each yes. sector that you it's know it's certainly a, a skill. It's a kind of a natural skill that uh, I became i I've become aware of. You know, that not everyone uh, uh, has always they always see maybe the government is more aggressive or is the more powerful. And it might be true, but the motivation behind might not come from a power, you know, greed mm. point of view. It might be simply because they think that they are entitled because of their experience, of their expertise, and uh, not because they think they are doing anything, because they can, but simply because they think it's the best. And um, yeah, you have to find new words uh, to make, First of all, often calm the spirits mm. and, uh, you know, divert a little bit sometimes the, the what what the debate is about, slightly narrow it or enlarge it or slightly on the side so we come back from a more calm point of view. And, uh, yes, sometimes I'm, I'm more creative than other times. It's, mm. uh, sometimes, I don't know, it's uh, the, the luck of the day. But uh, yes, it is something I've always been good at um, trying to reach the gap, you know, because communication to me at the end is more important. I come from, my father was French and my mother was Spanish. And uh, at home we would speak three languages because my mother was from Catalonia in Spain. Okay. And, uh, but my parents between them would speak their, this very, very or Spanish language. It was not, <laughs> my father was not, never studied Spanish and my mother was from Catalonia, so Span, her Spanish was better than my father. Still, it was not exceptional. And uh, I would speak French with my dad, Catalan with my mom, and they would speak to each other in Spanish. And I was already, from a child perspective, always a mediator between them because sometimes they would not understand each other. It was like <laughs> they are not talking the same language. They are trying but not succeeding. And I was like, Mom, Dad, you're saying the same thing. Can you just not see it? 
And <laughs> maybe it's the same with parents with a different language. I don't know. But in my case, it was blatant. This thing was blatant that sometimes people talk and they really, they say the same thing and they don't even realize they are saying the same thing. Well, I used to play that role with my mother and my sister. My sister was quite feisty as a young woman and my mother was strong-willed. So they used to often just get into these clashes and I'd sit in the middle and say, now, mom, you stop talking and listen. And my sister, you talk, but clearly without anger. And now you, sister, stop and listen. And now you, mom, say what you have to say. So it was I was always the one in the middle because I, too, have the ability to often listen, understand the other side. Yes. I, 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 yes, I totally understand that. Even, yes. even with my son, when he'd come home from school and he had been punished, and he would tell me mm-hmm. his story. I'd go to him and I'd say to him, well, I've got to go and listen to your... I have to listen to the other side. And then we'll decide. I believe you, but I have to listen to the other side. So, <laughs> and so it's always good. It's good to be fair. Um, what other good qualities do you have behind the... Because you said something earlier, you... Is it your... The fact that you can, you've uh, been in a lot of sectors, do you believe that's helped you? Or is it a natural talent that you think it is? What has pushed me has always been to grow, honestly. I don't know if it's a strength or not, but certainly it has shown a capacity to adapt to very different uh, realities, cultural realities. Mm. And uh, I always find myself pretty much everywhere at home, even more if it's the Mediterranean. That's (laughs) true. But, um, yeah, I think uh, maybe because also my family, I, I am a citizen of the world and um, Andorra is a small place. I love my country, but I've always been curious about the rest of the world. I've always wanted, uh, and also I had this passion. I had the, the passion about the environment. And after a while, when I saw that there was not much scope for me to be a professional in the environmental field uh, as a lawyer in Andorra, I moved. I moved on. This is why I moved to Italy. It's maybe not the first country I thought of, but this is where the opportunity knocked at my door, and that's where I went. And from then, I moved also to Innsbruck for the Alpine Convention, and uh, now I am in Rome again, working for mountains again as a policy officer. And yeah, it's more about growth and not Stopping myself, of course, there are times that, you know, life stops yourself, mm. like we have seen in the last four months. Yes. <laughs> that sometimes just... <laughs> Stop inside. Don't you know, move. we cannot, we have, we don't, we don't have a word about certain times in our life. But whenever I have been able to, I think that my own growth in terms of a human being, of what I am exposed to, what I am curious about, what I want to, you know, impact on has made me go on you know go to Italy go to work for the Alpine Convention now work for the FAO at the Mountain Partnership um, also be you know I was candidate to be the I was the first women candidate for Andorra at the European Court of Human Rights wow uh, did you yeah, win I arrived second largely okay. very very far behind the first candidate who was a magistrate and was better maybe uh, prepared than me for that role. But I was not afraid to put myself in that uh, position to try to be a candidate, the first female candidate of Andorra 
at the post of European court, you know, judge of the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, because it's also the same, you know, at the end, the European Court of Human Rights has so many interesting decisions regarding right to life, mm. where citizens come looking for a decision of this, uh, you know, sort of European Supreme Court, you could say it, in, because they have problems with the environment, mm. like an airport uh, with waste facility, because the land planning, there was very interesting land planning in Greece, where um, they were destroying wetlands. Yes. And they said, you know, this is a place where me with my dogs and my children we go every day, you know, and this is going to be destroyed. It has biodiversity. And they go using the tools that are available to them. And the European Conventions on Human Rights affirms a certain number of rights that all European countries recognize. And citizens go to the European Court of Human Rights, you know, using the tools they have, even for environmental mm. matters. And to me, it would have been, I mean, extraordinary, I mean, beyond, beyond maybe my all expectations to be judged for nine years in Strasbourg. It did not happen, but I put myself in the situation to maybe let's let's try. I, I'm not afraid to try to grow and put myself in in new challenges. I believe this is how, as a professional and as a human being, it's how we grow. Well, the worst thing that can happen <laughs> is it doesn't happen. That's the worst thing that can happen. So you try yes, something definitely. else. Tell yes. me <laughs> now that you you're a what do you feel as part of the Better Training Women Mediators Network? What do you feel it can bring to you or you can bring to it? Definitely what it brings to me is a huge dose of inspiration. You women of this network are incredible, all of you. You impress me with all your achievements, everything that you've done. When I listen to your stories, it's like I said, I want to be better. I want to keep, you know, trying to impact and have, uh, you know, good results for, uh, you know, one process. And one of these process might be like, you know, what I was telling you about the waste facility mm. in Andorra, that in 10 years from now, you see, my part was ridiculously small, yet I was a part of the solution. And that's what I would be able to say when I look, you know, behind and say, yes, I was part of that conflict. I was able to, you know, highlight that uh, in that case, the access to water was important for the communities and maybe you know because i have some environmental knowledge as well at uh, all these years i could think of a common situation and understand what the people were saying and what the government was wanting and maybe help find a solution and i think i have enough respect for um, the government figure you know to and the law and the authority to never, um, because you're mediated doesn't mean that you are against the authority. No, it doesn't. Uh, I believe that this is one problem the authorities might have with the figure of mediation, is that they might think that uh, it's something against them, you know. It's true that for an authority to accept the mediation, they already have to have some sense and some understanding of what the mediation is. Mm. If not... Of course, I have never found myself in other situations, but what I've seen from my very modest experience is that the um, authorities that are willing to mediate are already have a sensitivity and a certain 
um, you know, opening towards um, a non-conflict, mm. not not going to to the end of the conflict, and that I think is the requirement for the authority. And then they might see the mediation really as part of the solution, and then what we as mediators can come in and we can try to do our best. Um, so we need, re- so, so we really yeah. need to promote our roles in the true sense to avoid a misconception. Yes, there are lots of misconceptions, yes. Well, I think the biggest misconception is that peace is one thing. Yes. Or a solution is one thing. I think that's the Exactly. Big, I think exactly. that's the biggest misconception that it's in one place and it's one thing and there's only one way of solving it. Yes. So. And process is all. I mean, the, and there will be cases where the process will not succeed, but still something will have been learned mm. through it. No, I agree with you because in mediation, nothing is lost. No, exactly. Nothing is lost because you put things on the table and you talk, so nothing is lost. I think that's the biggest role we need to play as mediators is to unpack peace, especially to the both to the stakeholder, to the people at the table and to the people on the ground, that it's not one thing. We all play a role. Everyone's important and everyone needs yes. to win. Everyone needs to win. Which doesn't mean you will lose. No, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and uh, yes, and at the time, yes, it's a, what I've seen in the conflicts where I've where I've been involved is really you have to be very neutral in the way you speak, so you really don't seem, you know, to favor one or the other, but you have to show huge respect for ones and the others because they are in a very sensitive mode mm-hmm. in difficult times. And people, you know, the wrong word, the wrong attitude, they immediately feel it so emotionally in they... a very exacerbated way. And uh, it triggers reactions that they might not even mean sometimes, but because of the context, because of the moments, because of the timing, they will react in a disproportionate way. And this is difficult. This is where the you know the thin line we're walking on as mediators mm. is that one. It's not to trigger one or the other, and to really make them understand in both sides that you really have huge respect for both. And because you it's if not, they will not trust the process, and you need both parts to trust the process. Um, tell me, where do you see Patricia in ten years' time? Ah, the 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 ten years time question. <laughs> Listen, I just came back from a few years for family reasons. I could definitely not work in the environmental field, and I have been back for one year now. In ten years time, I really want to still be working in the environmental field. Uh, you know, I will be starting a new training in September on mountain sustainable uh, development uh, online and university that is in, from uh, Scotland. So I'm putting myself again a little bit, uh, you know, uh, I want to learn again a few concepts that have evolved. Mm-hmm. I had my master 20 years ago because time passes, <laughs> it passes quickly. And my biggest wish for me really is... Um, yeah, why not maybe have moved again from the government side to maybe a more um, NGO side where I can be more proactive and talk and be more in touch with people because uh, I have 
you were saying the skill about being able to communicate um, with people and um, say what common people, you know, their concerns and express their concerns, be a voice for the environment because more than ever we need it. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I would just, this is my, for me, this is where I want to be maybe in 10 years time, okay. in the environmental field and maybe in a position for an NGO, uh, you know, being more proactive and keep being the middle person between the citizens and the government. Okay. And tell me if you, if I asked you to name a role model, who would you name as a role model? Who's inspired you? A role model. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm not very good at these things of role models. Uh, there are so many of them. Uh, I was, uh, the other day, I was simply, um, you know, uh, watching this um this video about I think it was the anniversary of the death of um, the African Peace Prize novel, you know. Um, uh, let me remember her, and I don't want to kill her name. Uh, Wangari Masai, okay. that's the name I wanted, I don't want to destroy. And uh, there, there are these people like Wangari Masai, I mean, there is, uh, of course, uh, so many environmentalists that are out there in the field and uh, they are so rooted in their community. You have someone like Vandana Shiva. I oh, mean, she's uh, wonderful. You know, she is impressive what she impressive. has achieved for me. She was, you know, when I was reading her, when I was doing my master of laws, like, wow. Mm. But I remember distinctively um, a, a lady in New Zealand I was attending, uh, you know, public participation committees. I mean, studying in New Zealand was interesting for me because when you were saying, I am studying environmental law. People were, oh, that is so interesting. We need it so much. And you can see a country like that in 20 years being consistent what they have achieved. And uh, it's fantastic. And I remember being in one of those committees and was, there was um, the president of a small, again, conservation um, fisheries. It was about fisheries and coastal management and she was a lady with white hair, long white hair, very, you know, bohemian. Mm. But she spoke with so much passion and conviction and she impacted me so much. And I said, I want to be like her when I am older. Yes, I want to be someone who can, you know, at 70 years old, still be um, defending what she believes is important. And there are many many environmental conservationists who are women. Of course, there are many men, but as we are in a network of women, mm. then this is why I was looking for the name of Wangari Masai, because, yeah, because there are these people who make the entire difference. Mm. And I am not sure I will ever make such a big impact, but as little impact as I can try to have, I will keep trying until the end. So, yes, these are my role models, these women who are speaking for the environment. And, you know, even this, uh, the young uh, little uh, Swedish, uh, yes. you know, Greta, Greta Thunberg, she's, she's fantastic. I wish we ha I, I wish my generation would have had a Greta Thunberg because, uh, as I said, I work to environmental concerns and I was 21, 22 when I moved uh, to Canada to do that third year of international law. But that's late already for a, for a, for a generation. Mm. If someone would have told me at 13 or 14 what was going on, 
maybe we wouldn't be in such a dire situation now. And uh, I think she speaks with fire and uh, and she's not the only one of mm. her generation. And I admire them. I admire all ages women, you know, environmentalists out there because the world needs them. And uh, the planet is beautiful ecosystem that the nature has evolved to and has allowed us to thrive as human species in it deserves respect as well as much as the people absolutely we've got to remember that this is our home the planet yes. is our home and if we don't respect it it's already reacting to its bad handling of course it's already reacting so yes. we've got to really understand that unless we respect it and we negotiate with it or mediate with it it's not going to be here for much longer nor are we so i i thank no, you for, i thank you for your passion it's nice to see someone that's so passionate about something and i'm sure you will be around in your 70s i won't to see you but you will be around in your 70s doing your thing and working on the environment so really nice to speak to you really glad thank you magda really glad you i could you, you were here on her stories and look forward to meeting you again when you say you might be coming to Cyprus. Inshallah you may. Absolutely. Inshallah you come to Cyprus. I'm very looking forward. I loved it. I loved your mountains. They are fantastic. And there's a big history about our mountains which I'm sure the ladies here told you about. Okay, yes, so Yes, it was fascinating to discover. So I look forward to reconnecting with you either in Rome or in Cyprus, but really glad you made it to her stories. Thank you for inviting me and having me. Thank you Patricia and have a lovely rest of the day. If you enjoyed this episode of Her Stories, please leave comments, suggestions and reviews and share with anyone you feel may find this equally interesting. A big thank you to our sponsor, UN Woman, and see you on the next episode.